Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. My name is Anne-Marie Koistra. I teach in the History Department. And I'm Carrie Peffley, and I teach in the Philosophy Department. Carrie Peffley is also functioning as our guest today. Uh, we will be talking about Thomas Aquinas, one of her favorite guys ever, apparently. Yes. Is it his face that you like or his his brain? It's the bald it's the patch brain. Oh, it's the and bald. the brain. Bald pate. Mm-hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. So um, stay tuned for 20 minutes of um, stimulating conversation about Thomas Aquinas, Catholic thought, and maybe a little music. Today, it is Carrie and I. It is us. It is we. It is we. I'm not sure. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Thomas Aquinas and the Summa. Mm-hmm. And so, Carrie, since you're the expert and you're lecturing on this guy, um, do you want to give us a little overview of? I mean, that seems like a ridiculous question. But. <laughs> yes, I mean, so the the Summa is really it's it's the pinnacle of theological knowledge. So the Summa Theologia, um, and so it is everything that could be written on any theological topic or any thing that a person who's interested in learning would know about. So a summary is, it's a summary of everything. Um, and it's so not it's not a helpful summary. No, I know. So it goes from um, what's the relationship between faith and reason, between theology and philosophy, to what's the best way to live. And so he incorporates Aristotle's natural law and virtue theory um, to what is sacramental theology, what's going on um, when we take the Eucharist or when we are baptized, to... Um, what happens when Christ dies? What does Christ's death on the cross do for us? So it, it really is a compendium of everything that a that a theologically minded person might be interested in. Wow. Mm-hmm. And what parts of the Summa are we focusing on for our students? So we're focusing on some of the stuff on faith and learning because... Obviously, we're an institution that values the integration of faith and learning, right. and our medieval thinkers are great exemplars of that. And I think all of the medieval thinkers, regardless of whether they're Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, they're all doing philosophy and theology at the same time. Everything is kind of fully integrated. So we're going to focus on some of those sections. We're also going to focus on, because we've had students read Aristotle and his virtue theory, we're going to focus on how Thomas Aquinas adapts those and adds theological virtues to Aristotle's virtue theory. Um, And some stuff on just approach to scripture, Um, What are the various ways that scripture can be interpreted, metaphorical interpretations, allegorical, um, literal, those sorts of things, analogical, anagogical. Wow. Yes. (laughs) You're smarter for just having heard those words. (laughs) (laughs) We need lots of phrases for like cocktail parties. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, Okay. So... My father-in-law is visiting from out of town, and I said, oh, we're going to talk about Thomas Aquinas. And he said, well, what is Thomas Aquinas? Like, why is he important? And so you've already mentioned that he writes about everything. But if you were going to answer someone who is a smart person, but maybe doesn't know much about Thomas Aquinas, Mm -hmm. what would you say are his significant accomplishments? And then I'll tell you what I told him, and we'll see if I I was was right. I like this game. Um, So... 
the there are probably two major things, at least off the top of my head, that I would say. Um, number one, he's at a really interesting moment in history where all of the works of Plato and Aristotle have just been translated into Latin for the first time. Okay. So this happens in the 12th century, and it happens in kind of two different movements, um, but they all kind of converge on the University of Paris, which is where he was in the theology department. Um, and so he is one of the first... It, in many ways, he's kind of comparable to what Augustine is sort of doing. But because Augustine didn't know Greek and nothing was translated into Latin, he didn't have access. Um, but Augustine is doing this. He's trying to do a synthesis of the books of the Platonists, which he has, that is Plotinus, um, and Christianity. Aquinas is doing that, but with all of the works of Plato and Aristotle. So he's kind of the first generation of scholars, of Christian scholars who have access to Aristotle. Mm -hmm. And so the moment in history means he's doing an interesting blend of philosophy and uh, of Aristotelian philosophy and theology, which had never been done in the West before. And trying to figure out how to do that without getting in trouble, right? So to what extent right. is it okay for a Christian scholar to use these sources? Yes. And not just coming from the pagan world, but also coming from the Muslim world. Oh. And so there's some interfaith dynamic of what he's doing, as well as then just sort of ancient philosophy that he's drawing in. Okay. So that's one kind of major set of, of things that I think makes him interesting. The other one is just that if... So this comparison to Augustine that I think is interesting, that what Augustine is trying to do with the books of the Platonists, Aquinas will try to do with Aristotle. So there, there are these interesting trajectories, I think, that you can follow between Plato, Augustine, and then moving forward to the Protestant Reformation. Right. And then between Aristotle, Aquinas, and then the Catholic Reformation. Right. So in understanding Aquinas's theology and the way it's influenced by Aristotle's philosophy, you can understand a lot more easily um, the things that were articulated in the Catholic Reformation. So I did not mention that second one, okay. but I did in my my own way say something like, Christians are always trying to reconcile their relationship to the larger culture. Mm -hmm. And so going back to Tertullian mm -hmm. or Tertullian, depending on how you say that, yeah. I never know. Um, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem or right. whatever the phrase is, Jerusalem and Athens? And so I said, Thomas Aquinas is somebody who is bringing scholar scholasticism to yeah. bear on questions of faith. Mm -hmm. And he really, I feel like, is asking, He, in, in some ways he's like um, Augie in this way, in that he is saying like, Reason can bring us actually a great deal of the way to understanding who God is. Mm -hmm. And he even uses philosophy, right, to make an argument for the existence, for the existence of, of God. God. Yes. So. Yes. So he is, he is very, very optimistic about what reason can do unaided, what the unaided light of natural reason yes. can do, as opposed to Augustine, who is going to, especially later on in his life, argue that really, there is no unaided natural light of reason. Um, we are fallen, and that means reason has fallen as well. Right. And so we have to have some sort of divine illumination before our reason starts functioning. Aquinas is very optimistic and says, no, 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 reason is very functional, and it can lead us, it can't save us, mm -hmm. but it can leave a, lead us all the way, almost all the way there. Well, and I think so, the fact that you just talked about their significances in terms of um, Augie being sort of a big uh, figure in the Protestant Reformation and then Aquinas and 
uh, Aristotle being important mm-hmm. for the Catholic Reformation, the way that you just talked about it, I thought was really helpful in talking about you really see the optimism even in Erasmus, mm-hmm. and yes. you see the pessimism in, in Luther. Luther. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a really interesting and helpful trajectory to sort of follow through as we're thinking even about interim and the stuff that we'll talk about there. Yes, so that exactly. is really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. I'm of course. Glad. Of yes. course it is. But you did talk about the first, the I first did. one that I did. So what did you say about that? Well, I just said um, that there is this sense, I think, in our current culture that mm-hmm. Christianity and culture are at diametric odds. Mm -hmm. And so he really is somebody who is recovering um, scholasticism Mm -hmm. and reason as a way to actually understand God and religion better. So here's my question. What does he add on the virtue piece? You mentioned that he he takes this idea of virtue and then Mm -hmm. adds, did you say theological Theological virtues? virtues. And so what are those theological virtues? So, I mean, Aristotle's virtue theory has two sets of Virtues. So you have moral virtues because we are social creatures and need right. to live well with others. Right. And then you have intellectual virtues because we are rational. And that is what makes humans unique. Aquinas agrees with both of both of those, but also thinks that there are these theological virtues. And these are kind of infused virtues. He actually calls Aquinas calls faith an infused habit of the intellect. Mm-hmm. So even faith itself is God working through our intellect. Mm-hmm. And so these are going to be the virtues that are essential for eudaimonia for living well right um but they're ones that come not through natural reason but through revelation they have to be infused given from the outside Ah. as opposed to the natural capacity that we all have to learn moral and intellectual virtues okay so is faith one Mm -hmm. what are are there others besides charity charity and love and hope i think those are the four is it faith hope and charity Mm -hmm. these three yeah corinthians but I think something? there might be a fourth that he adds. Okay, he never well, teaches theological virtues other than in humanity. Right, so well, I only we'll, teach we'll, it every we'll other year. We'll find out. And yeah, maybe we'll we talk will. about it next time mm-hmm. and see who was right on yeah, that Yeah, who was one. right about <laughs> I, I four know. or three theological virtues. Okay. So now you're the medieval scholar. Mm-hmm. And I'm I am one of. There are so okay, many Okay, there are so many medieval scholars. I am not a medieval team. scholar. But I do know from the perspective of the Renaissance that the medieval period is also sometimes known as the Dark Ages. Yes. And we go from Augustine, which is like 300s, mm-hmm. to Thomas Aquinas, which 1200s. 1200s. So who are the bright spots? Oh, that's about, like Carrie's looking at me and going, why are you asking me this terrible question? No, no, no. No, okay. no, it's a fabulous question. She can't see me over our mic pieces, but I'm actually smiling and, okay. not, and not frowning. Okay, good. Um, so... There are, in the West, there aren't very many. So when I'm teaching my students about the Middle Ages, I will say, you know, don't use this this pejorative term, the Dark Ages is terrible. And it, you know, it's meant to imply that there's not a whole lot that's going on. It's kind of true in the West. Um, After the Roman Empire in the West falls, the the system of roads breaks down. Mm-hmm. Um, the economy kind of falls apart. You move from an urban society to a very agrarian, mm-hmm. like learning kind of dies off. And because they haven't translated Plato and Aristotle, they also have lost all of the ancient thinkers other than Aristotle's logic that Boethius had translated before he got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of all the West has. Um, but there are these 
there are a few remarkable figures that we just don't have time to look at. One of them, um, Bertrand Russell, who's a 20th century um, British philosopher, comments in his history of Western philosophy, he jumps right from Aristotle uh, to Descartes and doesn't do anything in between. Um, Because again, nothing really happened in the Middle Ages, except for, he says, the shining bright light that is John Scotus Ariagina. Oh, my word. So he is this Irish monk from the ninth century. So I think he lives from like 800 to 877, was at an Irish monastery, somehow learned Greek, which is remarkable, and then was a court philosopher for one of the Carolingian um, um, kings, I think Charles the Bald, okay. I want to say. <laughs> um, Sam thinks that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to be known as Charles the Bald as or well? The fat. I feel like there's uh, a Yeah. There's a Louis fat the one. Pious. There was definitely okay. a, somebody the fat. Um, so he was this court philosopher, translated some of the works of Pseudo Dionysius, who's a, a Greek or a Syrian uh, monophysite monk. Um, and then did a lot of theological works on his own, very influenced by Aristotle's categories. So he's doing some interesting stuff. Peter Abelard, oh, yes. who will study in terms of his atonement theory, was also doing some really impressive logic. Um, and then Anselm, who will also discuss as yes. it relates to his atonement theory, also doing some interesting stuff. All but those are kind names, of, except for your, your... Except for Ariagina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, a ton of stuff is going on in the East. So there are a lot of amazing Islamic philosophers, Eastern Christian philosophers, and Jewish philosophers. It's just not a whole lot is going on in the Latin West right. during that period. Which sort of brings up the question about, should we have a... Eastern humanities class, right? Because that seems, given what you've just said, like a rich Mm -hmm. field. Yes. And one of the things that I'll talk a little bit about in the lecture on Monday, I think, um, is the fact that these notions of Western versus Eastern during the Middle Ages, those boundaries are really fuzzy Mm. um, because... Um, Spain, which we would consider part of the Western world, is part of the Islamic Empire. Right. Um, and even parts of Italy are part of the Islamic Empire. So um, this notion that there's a strong, like when we study Western humanities, that it's sticking into this neat category of just Western thought, that sort of breaks down when you look at um, what's happening. And then, of course, once we get to Aquinas's time, the Eastern world is starting to influence the Western world. And right. so this great, important thinker in Western thought wouldn't be who he was without Islamic thought. Right. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, can you confirm um, something that I believe Dr. Shady told me that um, Thomas Aquinas was rather a large <laughs> human yeah. being? Yes. And maybe actually had a custom desk? Yes. So legendarily, he, I mean, he was apparently like not just a little bit overweight, but like it was enormous. Okay. Um, so much so that he had to have, yeah, a, a special desk that had part of, uh, I'm trying to motion like you guys can see me out there, but he had a cutout, a cutout so that his belly could kind of fit in at his desk. Um, and when he was younger, when he was a student in school, he was very, very quiet in class as well. And so people thought he was very stupid. So this gave him the nickname of the dumb ox. Wow. Because he was stupid and fat. Um, and apparently one of his teachers, Bonavent- Bonaventure, um, or sorry, Albert the Great, um, ended up saying, beware of this dumb ox. Once he opens his mouth, he will bellow and change the world or something like that. See, those are those are humanizing details mm-hmm. for, for someone like me. Like, I, I yeah. appreciate that he's got the summa, mm-hmm. but it 
it makes it makes him a little bit more tenable to me that he's also the dumb ox. Yes. I don't yes. know. Maybe that says yeah. more about me. Oh, totally. And I mean, he's just an interesting figure as well. He really wanted to be a Dominican mm-hmm. friar. Um, but at that point, the Benedictines are very well known. They're um, much more well respected. What's, and so, what's, wait, wait, wait. What's the draw of the Dominicans as opposed they, to... So they were a mendicant group. Okay. They took vows of poverty. Okay. Um, Thomas was really drawn to that. His family, however, was not. Okay. And so they kidnapped him and trapped him in the family castle to try to convince him that he should become a Benedictine instead of a Dominican. He eventually overcame and was able to become a Dominican. So he has an interesting family history as well. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other thing that I pointed out to my father-in-law about Thomas Aquinas, um, and I love this about Thomas Aquinas, and I feel like this is true of a lot of the folks who are scholars Mm -hmm. and are passionate for God in this period, like they write music. Yes, so um, we're going to do a little chanting um, in the lecture. I'm not going to do that now, but I'll, I'll just read <laughs> But she has, she has the hymnal in front of her. I do so have the hymnal in front of me. But I, so here's the last verse, because we're not going to have the last verse in the lecture. But he's commenting about um, what is happening at the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And I love these words. So word made flesh, true bread he maketh by his word his flesh to be. That's just, those are great. And then wine his blood when man partaketh, though his senses fail to see, faith alone when sight forsaketh shows true hearts the mystery. Love that. That's beautiful. Isn't it? So even though he's writing about all these wonderful theological things and the wonder of philosophy and pointing the way to the theological and to God, there is still just so much beauty in the way that he uses mm-hmm. his words. And the chant is beautiful as well. I don't think he wrote the the music part of the chant, but um, yeah, but the, the, but the text. Yeah. And certainly, even though we, like you say, right, we're, we're focusing on the philosophical theology of Aquinas, mm-hmm. he also has a strong mystical bent. Mm-hmm. Um, this person that I was mentioning, this monophysite monk, Pseudo Dionysius, who Ariagina translates, um, Aquinas cites that particular person a ton to talk about the fact that we can't talk about God, that God is so much beyond us, um, and to sort of lead this way to this apophatic, mystical knowledge mm-hmm. about God, too. So he is interested in these deeply emotional, um, sort of personal experiences with the divine, not just the philosophical theology. Yeah, and I think that's in the 21st century, it's a little bit hard to um, imagine that they have this impulse. And mm-hmm. yet that's also, I think, something that actually connects us that I think we in the 21st century still have that deep longing for mystical connection. Mm-hmm. But that in the Middle Ages or medieval period, you experience that connection literally through the church and the sacraments. Yes. And so that's why all of this mystery of the Eucharist, like, that was the way to experience that ecstatic mm-hmm. connection absolutely with Jesus Christ and i don't think that we necessarily appreciate that in the 21st century mm-hmm. but that's why i like quoting that part of the yes the chant that's beautiful i'm very excited for the chant on monday now mm. i'm i'm i've been excited <laughs> so yeah um what else do you want to talk about with regard to thomas aquinas <sighs> well i just feel like i don't want to miss anything yeah um given that it is the Summa. I know. And, you know, and it's only one of his Summa. Oh, um, Because he wrote several Summa. Some people are overachievers, right? Yeah, he really, he really was. 
um, because he wrote this Summa Contra Gentiles, which is his kind of apologetic Summa, um, a defense of Christian faith against other faiths. I just feel like I'm hearing him say, don't you call me a dumb ox. (laughs) I'll give (laughs) you another Summa. It's true. Watch out. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, you know, right after he dies... There's a very interesting set of conversations, and we'll read some of the texts that ended up getting him in, even into a little bit of trouble about how to properly interpret scripture, oh, yes. especially Genesis. Um, and so I would encourage students as they're reading Augustine and then Aquinas to think about the impact, right, that this can have mm-hmm. a sort of a political fallout, a, a, you know, a faith-based political fallout right. um, that has an impact on Aquinas's reputation for a few years after his death. And then it's eventually the condemnations are revoked oh. um, of, of some of the things that he got into trouble for. So he was involved in a little scandal too. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, other books that people who like Aquinas might turn to? Um, so there are, so um, Peter Kreeft, who wrote the Summa of the Summa, has written some other Articles, okay. books on on Aquinas. I would recommend. He's a very he's a really compelling writer. Okay, um, does a very good job. Um, Eleanor Stump. If you want some really really sort of big theological philosophical um, takes on Aquinas, has just written a large book called Aquinas. Okay, um, that is absolutely amazing. Right. Um, so those are two thinkers that I really, I respect their approaches to Aquinas. Yeah. F- feel free to email me or Carrie if you've picked that book up and have read it because uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I almost feel like there should be prize money for that. But uh huh. anyway. Yeah, there should be. It's it's mm-hmm. probably like 800 pages, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. So a little light reading for the, mm-hmm. the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. Exactly. Fantastic. Yep. Yep. And oh. what are, not related to Aquinas, but what are you reading right now? That is a great question. And I am reading, I have gone back to Pat Barker, who wrote The Silence of the Girls, and she has written uh, a trilogy. And it was the third book, I think, in the trilogy that got the Booker Prize, not The Silence of the mm-hmm. Girls. But so I was, um, it's a trilogy based on the first book is about World War One and Siegfried Sassoon mm-hmm. um, going to the mental institution. And then the other guys who are um, at the mental hospital because of shell shock or whatever else. So I'm reading the first book in the trilogy. It's called Regeneration, I believe. Does that? And Sam's saying yes. And it turns out, now I'm looking at Sam, I'm pretty sure I read that book before for book club. So your wife maybe has read it. And I'm enjoying it very much the second time having read the other Pat Barker book. But it's mm-hmm. very interesting because it's, Looking at questions about war and mm-hmm. masculinity and how we have maybe ideas about what masculinity should be. And so therefore, when you're not meeting those standards, mm-hmm. that compromises a whole lot of things, the doctor-patient relationship. So I definitely did not read books two or three. So I'm now going to push through and read books two and three. That's mm-hmm. next on my reading list. How about you, Carrie? Very cool. What are you reading? Well, still on fever pitch. So okay. about, you know... Uh, a, a fan's obsession with soccer. I just love that you can like like Latin just rolls easily off your tongue. Like the like the intellectual level is so high when you just step into the room and then you like say summa this that and the other. Mm-hmm. Here's this person and that person. And then you say and I'm reading Fever Pitch. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. that's that's also helpful. And I will also 
for sure bring up a Cleveland Browns reference in my lecture on Monday as well. Just to keep it real. Just to keep it real. And I've also started, this is maybe going to sound scandalous, but it's not as scandalous as it first appears, a book, and I can't remember the name of the author yet. I'm only one chapter in, called Why Why Buddhism is True. Oh, and it's written by a psychologist. Okay. Um, and so he's talking about meditative practices and how psychologically um, they're actually the, the meditative practices that one finds in Buddhist practice seem to map onto what neuroscience and psychology tell us about the way the brain works. Because, so, of course, very interesting. Carrie can't leave it at fever pitch. No, no. I got to get into something else at the same time. <laughs> right on. Well, that's been our 20 minutes. And you've been listening to bookish at Bethel. <laughs>